And if I've not met you before, uh, my name's Pete as well. Uh, I'm part of the staff team here at KXC. And if you weren't here last week, you'll be maybe unaware that we started a two-part vision series. Um, and uh, Pete Hughes, uh, who leads the wife, uh, leads the wife, <laughs> uh, leads the church with his wife, uh, B. Uh, spoke last week, and, and um, he cast the vision of the church, which has always been the same, and we're not changing it because we've run out of new ideas, it's because we really believe in it, and it's not changing, even though uh, we've had it for several years. If you've been a part of the church for a long time, you'll know this, that our vision is to recklessly give ourselves away to God in worship, to each other in community, and to the people of King's Cross and beyond in mission. That has been our vision since the beginning. It's always going to be our vision unless Pete decides to change it at some point. But it's our vision. And what he also cast, so he cast that and recast that, but he also spoke about what we feel the God is stirring in our community at this particular time, the current expression of that vision, and did so through launching that, the All In campaign. So you might have seen these on, on your seats if you haven't already. Uh, do take them home with you, read them at home. Um, and I hope they're really helpful to you just to understand what the Lord is stirring uh, in the community at this time. Uh, and really this All In campaign, it, it emerged out of the spiritual journey of our church over the last year. And Pete took us through various teaching series that we've been on. I don't know if you remember these, but from breakdown to breakthrough and the key learning of that was like if we're going to see a move of God it's not because we got ourselves perfect or because we strived for it or worked harder for it or because we were strong it's going to be because we're weak and because that and in that place his power is made perfect that at the point of breakdown is often the point of breakthrough and so we, we were trying to just allow um, essentially God to come in and inhabit our weaknesses uh, that he might do more through us and then we got a hunger for revival and, and just a sense that the there want to be a fresh outpouring of the spirit and looks at revival the church on fire the city alive and then we realize well that's not going to happen if we don't get our get our hearts right uh, before God and, and and dethrone some of the key idols of this city and of our time and of our culture um, and so we we did the war of desires series and naming some of those key um, ways in which we desire things other than Jesus first and foremost uh, and then we had the weekend away if you were there um, it was an amazing time which really felt like an outpouring of the spirit and it felt like where faith just rose up. And so when it came to January, like, where do we go next with this, with this journey? And we thought, actually, let's look at the early church. So if, if we're wanting to figure out in our time, in this place, how do we respond to the good news of Jesus? And how do we respond to this fresh outpouring of the Spirit and the new things that he is doing? Well, why don't we look at the early church to understand how they did? You know, the news of Jesus Christ bursting onto the scene. How did they respond to it? The outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost. How did they respond to it? Uh, so that we might learn how we respond here and now in our own way. And so we looked um, at the book of Acts. And, uh, and the only conclusion that we could come to looking at that is that they, they were all in. And that is where the language of this whole campaign came from. It's like, actually, they, they were a community that were for all. Anyone could be a part of it. And they gave all. They absolutely, in response to the good news of Jesus Christ, and in response to the pouring out of his spirit, they were all in with their whole lives. And included within that is very specifically, they were in with their money and possessions. They were all in with them. And there's this iconic uh, bit in chapter 2 uh, from verse 44. All the believers, this is just after the spirit has been poured out at Pentecost, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It's an extraordinary uh, response. And so today, what we want to do is we want to dive deeper into the issue of money and the possessions and giving. And as I say that, you can almost hear the, the bums shuffling. Like there's that moment of like, 
uh, that goes on in people. I don't know if you, like, it might even be worth you noticing that as I mentioned that, like, how do you feel? Like, what was the thing that went off in you? Defense is up, rolled the eyes. Oh, I don't know what it was, sense of dread or excitement. I don't know what it would be, but it's worth noticing and noting how it is when money is brought up. Uh, how it is that you react. It's a little window in, maybe, onto your relationship with money. But I want to be really upfront, right from the start, around my motivations for speaking today, for, for preaching. Uh, and there's two motivations. And, and the first is this, our discipleship. You're just going to have to trust me that this is actually my primary driving motivation behind today. It is that I, I care deeply about our discipleship. I care about mine and yours. What I mean by that is your apprenticeship to Jesus. You're becoming more like him. You're learning to do the things that he did with your money. And and learning to live in the story of Jesus and the story of God and not the story of this city. Being anchored in it and then retelling that story in a a compelling way to the city around us that might draw people into life of the kingdom. Uh, And uh, the the money is, is primarily a discipleship issue and a primary discipleship issue because of two things. I really believe this. Because of its destructive power and because of its creative potential. Money is a primary discipleship issue in terms of our apprenticeship to Jesus, becoming like him and doing the things he did because of its destructive power and because of its creative potential. And those are two things that I want to talk about today. And I really mean this. Money can no longer be a taboo subject in the church. We really need to, to get rid of it as a taboo subject we, 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 it, because it's too important to, to ignore, to shift around awkwardly it matters too much. It matters too much to our discipleship. Because if we ignore it, if it remains a taboo subject, something we don't talk about, then we will never be free, live in the freedom of Christ, free from the destructive grip of money. And nor will we harness its creative potential. I really believe that. So um, I, I feel really, I, I've been on a bit of a journey with this. Like when Pete first said, oh, you're doing the giving talk. It's like, oh no, everyone's going to hate me. Um, but, uh, but then like even up to last night, I just I got, went for a walk and just sorted myself out. I was like, actually, you know what? I'm so excited to be talking about this because I really mean it. This is so critical to our apprenticeship to Jesus. So the first motivation, I want to be upfront, is about our discipleship. The second motivation is obvious. We're in the all-in campaign. We're, we're in a time where we're asking people to be all-in as part of this community. With your time, so we're talking about serving as part on Sundays to make this community live and coming on Sundays and then serving as part of compassion teams and all of that sort of stuff. And as part of it, it, I want to be really clear, we really, really want people to be able to be excited about giving their in, uh, financially to this. So there, there is that motivation in there, and, but the reason I'm not apologetic about it is because I genuinely think it's exciting, because the, number two, giving, is a spiritual discipline that enables, number one, a life lived in the way of Jesus. I really believe that. Giving is the primary spiritual practice that both limits the destructive power and grip on your life of money. And at the same time, this is what's so beautiful about it, it also is the primary spiritual practice that will release money's creative and redemptive potential. I really believe that. The spiritual practice of giving, whether it's the all-in campaign or wherever it might be, I really believe it helps limit the grip of money on your life, and it also releases money's creative and redemptive potential. So that's why I'm excited about doing it. I think that giving does for money what Sabbathing does for time. Let me just unpack that. If you think about time uh, in this city and how we live in this city, there's so much rush, so many things to do. Uh, and, and Sabbathing, taking a whole day a week, is a statement, right? 
It's a subversive statement right into the heart of that busyness and rush that we can actually become enslaved to in this city. And it it says, actually, you know what? I'm going to loosen the grip of time over me, of rush and busyness and tasks and to-dos and say, actually, I trust you, God. I'm not going to be gripped by that and held captive by it. I'm going to set up this monument in my time, in my week, and, and, and limit the, the grip of time over me. At the same time, you know, it, it releases the creative potential of time. As you slow down, as you stop, as you start to see the world in a more slow way, as you start to realize there's people around you that you should care for, you pray differently. And also, suddenly, ideas start to emerge out of that slowed down and stopped place where you actually pray and trust God. So Sabbathing does that for time. I really believe that giving does that for money. It loosens the grip on you and it starts to embrace and release the creative potential that money has to bring life to people around us. Uh, does that sound good? Should we, should, we, should we tuck into that? Okay, let's go for these two things, destructive power and creative potential. I want to talk about the destructive power of money. And to do that, let's just go straight to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's skip through to verse uh, verse 21 first. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Through to verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you, you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I just want to pull a couple of things out of what Jesus is saying here. The first um, is around, we talk a lot about our, the condition of our hearts, right, in terms of uh, within, when we're talking about uh, pattern and apprenticing, and the whole War of Desires series was all about the reality that when something gets a hold of your heart, as you start to love it and desire it and have an affection and devotion for it, actually that, that moves your life in a certain direction. There is a connection between the things you love and the direction of your lives. And our language for that is misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. And what Jesus is doing here is he's making, he's establishing the direct link between money and possessions and the condition of your heart. Saying where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, and so he's saying that this, as he always did, right? He did it with lust or, or, or whatever it might be. He made it a heart issue. He's making it a discipleship issue. So for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Misdirected loves lead to misdirected lives. We need to be aware. We need to know where our heart is on the issue of money and possessions because our life is following it. Uh, And then secondly, so he's talking about money and possessions. Then at the end, he starts talking about essentially servitude uh, to a master. So no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. And the word for money here is mammon. It really, in the simplest level, it's just the Hebrew word for money. That's what mammon is. But it became more than that. They, people started to realize that actually money and possessions was an idol that was seducing us. And they gave uh, that idol a name. They personified it uh, and called it mammon. So that mammon is an idol. In other words, someone competing for the throne in your life the object of your worship. So read this. Mammon is an idol which seduces us, and seducing is the key word here. It seduces us into believing that life in all its fullness, happiness, purpose, meaning, safety, comfort, your worth, can somehow come from money and possessions. 
somehow there's a link between your identity and your worth and your happiness and your satisfaction and having money and possessions. That is how mammon seduces us. It makes, it, makes us think that that is the case. And um, Jesus thought that this was so important. He did something he's never done before. And Douglas Jones puts it like this. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among equals. He singled it out as the direct competitor to God. He never did that with any other idol, direct competitor to God. You cannot serve both God, Jesus, and money, mammon. You cannot do the two things. Um, and, and I want to explain a little bit about wh why that's the case. I've been getting into the Netflix documentaries around like climbing recently. Have you ever seen like The Dawn Wall or um, Free Solo? Yeah? Okay, they're epic. Absolutely. This is my mountain. This is my, my diagram of a mountain. Um, simplicity is beautiful. So um, this, is, this is the mountain of mammon. Anyway, um, and essentially, this, this is the lie. This is the seduction of mammon, that there is a summit to that mountain. There is a summit to that rock. And at the summit, the world is perfect. It is a beautiful view where you feel whole and you have meaning and purpose. You're happy, you're satisfied. And, and you just got to, climb there. you just got to get there through money and possessions. And, and so if you think about how you get to the summit is, is that you, you start to grab like little handholds, right, as you make your way up the mountain, making your way to this seductive summit where there's this promised sense of wholeness and meaning and purpose in your life. Um, and uh, the thing about this is that the, the, these handholds, as you're making your way up, they, they, they provide short-term motivation. This is how you're hooked in by mammon, is that actually if I just get that, then I'll feel this. If I just, or if I just, if things just became a little bit more breathing space in my financial life, then I will feel like this. Or if I could just own that, then I will just feel this. And so it provides short-term motivation. I'm going to go for that thing, go for that thing, but long-term deflation. Because our beloved C.S. Lewis once said that idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Idols always break the hearts of their worshippers because, you know what, there is no summit. Mammon promises much that, that, that money and possessions can bring you so much security and safety and comfort and meaning and purpose, and it's all a lie. There is no summit to be reached. And with each handheld that you're so motivated by to get there, you realize with each one actually, oh, Mammon promised so much, but it, it didn't give me that. It's an unfulfilled promise. And so uh, Walter Brueggemann put it like this, that money and possessions, these handholds as you're making your way up to that seductive summit are addictive forces of desire that evoke lust and love, that compel devotion and eventually servitude. You become a servant to that vision of that summit, of getting there and feeling like it promises. You become obsessed by it. And uh, another famous theologian and prophet, Jim Carrey, put it in a slightly different way. I wish everybody would get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. So they can see there's no summit. Mammon was lying the whole time. And wouldn't you rather realize that further down the rock than further up the rock? It's why I think this is so important. It's why it's a, an apprenticeship issue because it's going to get a hold of our hearts. And I'd rather learn that early on 
so I can be aware of it. Uh, Jesus told a parable about this. I think it's just an amazing story about someone who's been seduced by the script, the lies, the promises of mammon. Um, And it's from Luke 12. So let me read it out to you. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher or rabbi, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And again, I just want to pull a few things out of this uh, this passage. So um, at the very start is this idea. It's the script of the kingdom. So parables have a principle that underlies them, right? So Jesus is trying to to put across a principle to whoever is listening. This is the principle he's trying to get across. This is the script of the kingdom. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's the principle that this whole parable is about. Life is not found in an abundance of possessions. And directly after this parable, um, that this parable is meant to be in contrast to, is this whole amazing passage where it says, do not worry about your, your money, right? So uh, it talks about um, how much does God provide for the, the animals of the earth, and you know, he cares so much more for you. He sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he's for you. So seek first the kingdom of God, and all else shall be added unto you. In other words, it's in a complete contrast with this one. Life is not found in abundance of possessions. It's found in an adventurous, faithful life of Jesus Christ, trusting his character and his love for you and his provision for you. Uh, so the script of the kingdom, the principle of this para- parable is that life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And if you think about it almost as another bookend at the other end of this parable, is the alternative script, the seductive script of mammon. And it goes like this. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, this is the script I'm being seduced by. If I just have enough, if I have enough material possessions, then I can just kick back and relax. I'll finally be happy and merry and can take it easy. And what I want to show you is the journey of this character that Jesus is talking about, journeying towards the top of that mountain, towards that seductive script of mammon and some of the things that take place on that journey. And the first is this. He gets isolated from community. He isolates himself from community. He doesn't start, he he no longer thinks in terms of the community he belongs in. It might look like an innocuous sentence that he thought to himself, what shall I do? But it's actually really significant in the time. Uh, And so for us, it's slightly over our head, but for anyone listening at the time, it's really wow. And the reason for that is because it says here, he thought to himself, what shall I do? In other words, with the harvest. And uh, the reason that's significant is because that is not how people in agricultural communities would have thought in those days. In other, the, basically, the elders of the village, if there'd been a bumper harvest, they would have gathered everyone together and said, what should we do? What should we do? Who's got what? How can we divide it out? What are the needs? It was, a, it was a communal decision for the wider community that would have been drawn together by elders. And what, what Jesus is pointing out here is that this guy is, is no longer thinking about others. 
He's moved himself away from communities, making decisions himself. He thought to himself. He didn't go to the, the community. He didn't go to the elders. He thought to himself, what shall I do? And then this is consolidated as the, as the story goes on. And really, Jesus emphasizing how it's become about him. He's individualized the whole thing. And how he's, he's got this concept that he owns the stuff that he's got. So look at it. I don't know if you realize this when I was reading it, but how self-centered it is as language uh, when, when Jesus is telling this story. But it's things like this. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have very much. Eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, his isolated himself from community and thinking about others. It's become entirely about him. Remember what we're always saying here at KSC. Martin Luther defines sin as a life turned in on itself. No longer about others. It becomes all about you, your needs what you need, it, that's what's taking place here. It's become all about him. And he's got, this, he's got this idea that this bumper harvest, this stuff that he's got, that it's all his. That he can do whatever he wants with because it's his, his, his. It's about him, him, him. No longer about anyone else. And so there's an isolation that takes place when you're seduced by the script of man. Uh, and, and there's a sense that it, it becomes about you and your life turns inward. And you, you sort of own stuff because it's all about helping you get to the top of the summit. Uh, and so what happens? What does he do with that attitude going on inside of him? What does he actually do with his possessions and with his money? He holds on to them. He clings tighter to them. I will store up my surplus grain. When you're not, no longer thinking about others, when you're seduced by mammon, if you're just going after that and suddenly the things you have, you, you cling more tightly to them. You hold them closer to your chest. And, and Jesus' response to this, or God's response is to call this foolishness. It's not even a sort of anger, it's a, it's a foolish, just, oh, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And he uses this language here, this very night your life will be demanded from you. It's the same phraseology that creditors would have used when they recalled a loan in those days. So when someone had lent money to someone, when they called that loan back in, it's the same phraseology that Jesus is using here. In other words, he's saying, oh, you've missed the point. All of that was on loan to you. That was all for you to steward for the benefit of others and those around you. But you've made it about yourself. You've isolated yourself from community and you're holding on to it. And notice that it says, it's a story, but this very night your life will be demanded from you. Mammon promises that if you hold on to possessions, if you climb that mountain, you'll find life. And you'll find life in all its fullness. And what Jesus is saying, no, 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 you won't. You'll get isolated from community and, and it will actually be a kind of death. It will actually be a kind of captivity. The promise of mammon is false. It's not true. You will not find life at that summit. And, and just notice, in terms of our act series, and then this, like, how opposite is his approach to their approach? So his is all about ownership. Like, this is my stuff to do what I want to do with it. So I'm going to hold on to it. It, it. And theirs was about stewardship. It was always about how can we use whatever we have around us to bring as much life to as many people around us as we can. They gave to anyone who had need so that there was no one in need. Ownership versus stewardship. His was individualized. It was all about him and theirs was communal. They gave into a communal pot to a community with a vision that they had caught around the person of Jesus. And they gave it to the elders and they all decided as a community to serve the wider community. And he held on to it. They gave it away. How much more attractive is the way of Jesus shown to us in Acts than this parable and this rich fool. 
So just to close on the, on the mammon mountain stuff, like it, it, being seduced by the script of mammon just leads to a life turned in on itself, to isolation, actually to dissatisfaction because you, you hope in those handholds and yet you realize, oh, there were, he didn't come through for me. That Oh, I don't feel like I thought I would feel. Dissatisfaction, you start forgetting to say thank you for the stuff you've got. Why? Because the stuff you've got isn't good enough. It's not enough. And so you forget to say thankful, thank you for it. You start having envy and comparing yourself to those around you. One of the primary feelings is being left behind. Of like, oh, others are ascending and I'm not. Disappointment, anxiety, control, you start to hold on to things. Communities start to break down when people don't think communally. Uh, and, and there's a commodification of people. When you monetize your life, where it becomes about ascending the, the, the money mountain, so to speak, then people get commodified. They become commodities on the journey to helping you do that. And ultimately, it doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. And ultimately, it doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to captivity. Those are the lessons that we're learning uh, from Jesus' teaching here. Mammon's destructive power is personal. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to be seduced by mammon. And its destructive power is communal. It's not good for us as a collective. It's not good for this city when we start falling for the lies of mammon. And here's what I want to say. I really want people to hear this. Is that mammon seduces us all in some way. It'd be very easy at this point to almost be dismissing it of like, yeah, 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 I know people like that. Or there's people, you, you sort of think higher up the mountain, people with more, and the, and the wealthy, and you're starting to think, yeah, yeah, I can imagine that yeah, they've kind of been led astray by greed. What I want to say is that it, it seduces us all. Whether you're earning 300,000 pounds a year or 10,000 pounds a year, or you're, or you're not earning any money at all, I really believe we can all be seduced by mammon and all therefore need to be aware of it. And I want to go back to our parable just to point this out. Because um, at the very beginning is the person coming to Jesus. This is the person to whom Jesus teaches this parable, right? Let me give you the context. Someone in the crowd comes to him and says, tell, uh, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What this basically means in those days is that the father has died. And the custom of the time would be that the older brother is then responsible, if there is one, for handing out and assigning the inheritance. So this is a really vulnerable time for families. If there's any family dynamics going on, I'm sure there were. Like, this is a really vulnerable moment. So who is it that's coming to him? It's not the older brother who has all the power and wealth. It's the younger brother, the person at risk, the person who's poor, the person who doesn't have. So this is ultimately a story about a rich man being told to a poor man. And so let's not kid ourselves, let's not other this and think it's just for those who have a lot and they should really share it out more. No, 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 I really believe that Jesus is warning this person who actually doesn't have much. I'm warning you, like, uh, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Don't fall for the lie of mammon, even though you don't have very much. And I just want to tell you a bit about my story in relation to, to some of this stuff. And it's sort of three sort of chapters to it, if you like, over the last decade. Um, and the first one, essentially you know, out of my upbringing, which was a really comfortable upbringing um, uh, down in the southwest. And, I, and, and really what I mean by that is I wasn't particularly aware of money at all. It wasn't hard. I didn't have lots, our family. Um, and so it was just something that I didn't really know about and really care about. And that just stuck with me for years. 
and into coming into London. Just a lack of care, a lack of awareness about money. And I want to say that um, that's understandable. And I, you know, that's just where I'm building from in my life. But it meant I was, bad, I was badly stewarding my money. We talk a lot in, in our apprenticeship stuff around like waking up to the, to the, for, to the forces of the city or of your daily life rhythms because nothing is neutral. In other words, you can sleepwalk into becoming a certain shape, a certain type of attitude over a few years, right? In a workplace or in a family or whatever. Um, and, and I did that with money. It wasn't, so I had money and I was spending it. I just didn't know about it and didn't care about it. And honestly, speaking to a lot of people in the, in the stuff that I do within this church life, I don't think people are thinking a lot like, around like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be really generous or like, oh, I'm deliberately holding on to my money and not giving it away. I honestly just think most of us, most of the time, are just completely unaware. Unaware of the formative force of money, unaware of where it's going. We might know the headline of the money coming in, but then do we know how we're spending it beyond that? And, it, and it, for me, it was just, it's, it's been a real lesson of like, with everything I've just said about money, like we can't afford to actually just ignore it and be totally like um, blinkered to it and, just, and, and not know about how our relationship is with money. Because I think it is affecting us and our apprenticeship to Jesus. And then essentially, so I essentially just slept walked into chronic anxiety around money. And I came, we came to London. I was just a Devon dumpling coming to the big city. Uh, and uh, Tim's one as well, so he gets it. Um, and just like, just naive, again, unaware, unaware of the power of money. Um, and, and came to the city, and my wife and I, and we just had like times of unemployment, times of low wage employment, um, and underemployment, and all those sort of things. And honestly, just within, I've talked about this a bit before, okay, see, but like, we just very quickly uh, ran into just thousands of pounds worth of debt. Just naively, accidentally, slept, walked into this debt. And it quickly moved from not caring about money to just finding it the most anxiety-inducing subject going. And honestly, for the next two, three, four years, it ransacked my life. And I went from being someone who just, not a pretty non-anxious person, unaware of money, to being crippled by anxiety. I, could, I would have panic attacks every time I come back into London. I got skin sort of abrasions just all over my face. First time I ever got um, uh, vertigo was in this time. And I couldn't look at um, a bank account. I would just hit and hope when I went to the cash point. Kicking letters and from the doorway when we'd come in the house. Just like, I cannot deal with this. Uh, stuff and um, it just really it meant I could barely get on the tube it meant days off work uh, and uh, it was just this horrible horrible experience where I suppose now I realize the destructive power of money of this overbearing weight and me trying to find a handhold each time because I thought I didn't tell anyone I kept it quiet and I was just like I can get myself out I can get to the next handhold and find my way out of it and you know what? it just got so bad that at the age of 28, I'd spend two years uh, training myself to control my bladder again, at the age of 28 years old. The destructive power of money, I just slept walked into it, and I just didn't realize the grip that it could have in your life. And that is not because I was wadded and, and all of those things. It's because I didn't have very much. And that's the warning of Jesus around this stuff. So I believe that I've experienced some of the destructive power of money in my life. But then equally, and this is, you know, it picks up slightly here. Um, it, it is like I really feel like I've experienced the creative and redemptive potential of money as well. Because in that pit, in that time that we're in, when I finally had the courage to actually tell someone, 
Then people gathered around and they released their money, their possessions. They gave to us as we had need. And all of a sudden, a picture of faith started to emerge where all I could have was anxiety. And honestly, moving forward now several years, and I don't say this to celebrate me. I say it to celebrate the kindness and the generosity of people in this church, is that I feel full of faith around money. I really, really do, my wife and I. And we're making decisions now that we believe will release plenty of kingdom life based on faith around money and not around anxiety and fear around money. People released their money. They didn't hold on to it. They thought communally. They thought about us, and they used their money to bring life back to us and restore our faith in God that he cares and he knows and he will provide the destructive power of money and the creative, redemptive power of money. So I just want to ask you at this point, this question, how has the seductive script of mammon shaped you? The promise of that summit, that next handhold, that somehow you could be happier, more satisfied, find more meaning and purpose in your life if you had just a little bit more money and possessions. I have noticed I've said how has it because I really believe all of us are being affected by this. That's why I care so, so much speaking about it today. So how has, how, did you, how are you feeling now? What's going on in you as I'm talking about this? And, and I'm going to show you this diagram, which to be honest, when I first saw it, I just, in my superiority, it was just like, oh, this is so basic. Doesn't everyone know this? And then I actually considered it and reflected on it in terms of my own life. And I was like, oh gosh, oh gosh, I've got a long way to go. And so I want to ask you, which, which box do you most relate to out of these four? So let's start with the top left one. These are attitudes towards money. Money is 100% mine. 100% mine. My money to do what I want with. In other words, you worked flipping hard for it. Those long hours. And it's your money to do what you want with it. Who, who, do you see that at all in, in your life? Then you move over to the top right box. And it's essentially the same person but they've realized a sort of social expectation around giving. They're almost like, I, I still all mine, but I've realized in society, like it's quite good to give 20 pound a month to an NGA. And so like I will give that money and it almost like a tick box exercise around giving. And the reality of that is that you can give out of expectation, which is what this person does, or you can give out a transformation. And what we're going after in this thing, the whole thing around it all in, is we want people to give out of transformation and for giving to transform you. I think you can actually just tick, tick a box to avoid the inner question around your attitudes and your relationship with money and how God has a vision for it. Do you share it? So do, are you in that? No judgment. Like Honestly, it's only worth being honest here. There's no other point to this exercise other than honesty. So my stuff, but I'm meant to give something away, so I do. The other bottom left one is uh, like uh, probably this person has grown up in and around the church and it's like, oh, 10% of my stuff is God's to do what he wants. I'm going to give that away, but the rest is entirely mine to do what I want with. And then bottom right, 100% God's. It's all God's stuff to do what he wants to. My role in this whole picture is to just steward it as well as I can, to bring as much life as I can to those around me. The psalmist says that um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This amazing moment of worship. Oh, it's all yours, God. It's all yours. How can I steward it? How can I steward it? So where are you in that, on that journey? So if you're top left, just put your hands up. Oh, yeah, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. Uh, if, if, um, uh, if you are earning a lot of money today, or if you're earning none, or very little, and struggling to make ends meet, I promise you, you've all got the same goal. 
Everyone in the morning service, everyone in the afternoon service, and everyone in this service, we have a common goal, and it's to serve Jesus with our money and possessions, not mammon. It's to serve Jesus and not mammon. Giving as a spiritual practice is one of the ways that we dethrone mammon. We say no to that lie, to that summit, and we limit its destructive power in our life. So that's the, de- that's the destructive power, and I just want to talk for literally two minutes around the creative potential. Um, and, and the reason I'm not going to say too much is because Pete said it all already. So if you go to the, to the Pattern Podcast, if you haven't come across the Pattern Podcast, Spotify, iTunes, whatever, um, find the, the, the Pattern Podcast. And there's one just released, uh, hot off the press from Pete Hughes. He's been knocking on my door for months. He, he's been slipping notes under the door, just saying, Pete, just please ask me to do a Pattern Podcast. Like, I've, been, I've really got lots to say on stuff. So you're like, okay, Pete, you're my boss. Like, all right, go for it. And it turns out he actually does. It's brilliant. I really encourage you to look at it, to listen to it. And, and, and we wanted to create a resource that isn't just about this day for giving. It's like you can actually go back to it and be like, hey, how am I doing in my apprenticeship to Jesus in this area? But I just want to ask you some questions around the creative potential of money. Um, how do you use your money? And how much of your money do you use to make things beautiful? to order the disordered and to release kingdom life into this world. We talk a lot at KXC, right, about the cultural and creation mandate that we have that stems from the Garden of Eden where where humanity's original purpose was to take the beauty and the order and the life of Eden and extend it into the chaos, to join with God in the renewal of all things. And Jesus has recommissioned us into that. And, and, And we, as part of that, often ask us, each other, what is in your hand? So that's the call on your life, to live like that. What's in your hand to do it? A skill, a character trait, a home, whatever it might be. I want to really specifically ask you with your money, it's in your hand. How much of it are you using to bring the life of Eden, so to speak, to the chaos of the world around us? And Anna LePay, who's like a food justice kind of person, campaigner, said this. I think someone else might have said it as well. But um, Every pound you spend casts a vote for the kind of world you want. Every pound you spend casts a vote for the kind of world you want. And, and doesn't that sort of a question, that's sort of a, a, an idea, surely it's got to figure somewhere in our understanding as Christians of money. That if we are called to recreate this world, to see it redeemed, to see it made beautiful once again and ordered once again, then surely how we spend our money, that stuff that's in our hand, matters. We are spending it. Is it ordering disorder? Is it making things beautiful? I'd love, I'd love for you to go away and reflect on that. And this is what the All In campaign is really all about. It's, it is about this creative and redemptive potential of money to actually extend uh, the kingdom in this part of London and across the city. Um, and so if you weren't here last week, let me just give you a little head, he, a headline of what this is all about. So essentially, we, we have this thing of saying, come, belong, serve, give, right? Okay, so to be part of KSC, come on a Sunday, belong in a group like Hub or Pattern. So 30, as of last Sunday, 38% of people were in one of those. Um, sorry, that's 72%. Then we ask people to serve. Serve on a Sunday, that's 38% of people, and serve in a compassion ministry once a month, 27% of people do that. It's an amazing foundation, but I think we all agree, like, let's see that go up. And then in the bottom right, give. Give financially, um, joyfully, not out of pressure, uh, out of transformation, not out of expectation. Uh, 39% of people in this church do that. And last year, amazingly, that brought in 750, or near enough, 750,000 pounds. And we just wanted to say, um, 
that as, star, as a staff team, people was trying to point this out last week, like, we're not asking you guys to go somewhere that we're not willing to go ourselves. Um, and so um, P&B looked back over the staff giving last year, and of that £750,000, £107,000 of it was given by the 30 people in the staff team. It would have actually been less at the beginning of the year. That's 3% of the church giving 15% of the income of the church. And uh, we don't say that to, to celebrate us. What we say that is, is like we want to reassure you like we're in. We're absolutely committed to this with our finances. And then because 3% of the church, giving 15% of the church's income, wasn't enough for P&B, they, they decided to come back to the staff team for more. Um, and so as we launched the, the all-in campaign, we're like, we need to want to go for £250,000 over the next, up until September. And that's to, that's to plant churches. We're doing three grafts. We want to plant churches as well. We, we, um, there's, there's all sorts of redemptive entrepreneurial ideas that are bursting up all over the church. We want to be able to uh, f- support those and bring life to them there's buildings we want to be agile enough to get an, a compassion center when it when it uh, pops up and so listen to Pete's talk from last week if you missed it there's amazing stuff bubbling up and stirring in the community so we want to raise 250,000 pounds to support that by September and so they came back to the staff team and the staff team gave another 32,000 pounds on top of the 107 um, and this is this is people like the apprentices who, who volunteer two days a week of their time get paid four hours a week from us like this is amazing stuff from those guys uh, so with 32,465 pounds towards the 250 as of last Sunday. Now, would you like me to tell you what happened? Because last Sunday, Pete then invited you guys to join with us in giving to this. Um, and uh, I'm tempted to do that whole, like, name a figure and then do higher, higher, lower, lower. But, yeah, I just don't think I've got enough to carry it. So we're just going to go with it. Um, so this is what you guys have now, res- how you have responded generously to the movement of the Spirit at this time. Our total is now, as of Friday at 5 p.m., 120. That's a massive round of applause. It's extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. And, and honestly, we've been high-fiving around the office all week, like so excited because of the creative potential of that money and the redemptive potential of that money. And if you look at it, it so we were 39% of givers last time. We're now 44% of givers. So that £123,000 has come from people up, current givers, upping their money, and it's come from 37 people giving for the first time. And, and, and so we're just at 44%. And we're at 123,000 pounds. In fact, between Friday at 5 p.m. and, Mon- and Sunday at 10 a.m., another 2,500 pounds came in, which pushed us over the halfway point. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Imagine if that, those dials at the bottom are the ones we mainly care about because they show about buy-in. They show about people being invested. And the bottom, what, what if it got to 50%, 55%, 60%? We're never going to get to 100, but what is it, 65, 70? We're already at 125 pounds. I think that makes the hairs stand on end with excitement about what it is that we might be able to do in the coming months and years if we get all go in and we bump that bottom right dial up uh, to more than that. Anyway, let's, let's stand and pray. We want to pray.